You should find an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages of the manuscript of both exits, and you can get one now or later as you like, um, and follow along. And all of the sermons are now being put up on sermonaudio.com, and you can go there and uh, search for them for the last 24 years. I wanted to read again verses 5 through 7 of Colossians 3, even though I'm only going to comment on the end of verse 5 this morning. So just um, focusing in on the subject of when greed becomes God. Paul writes, therefore, literally put to death your members which are on earth with regard to immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Preaching on the subject of greed is not an easy task because it's not an easy subject. I think almost everyone agrees that greed is bad, and so we tend to sit back and go, well, amen, we're all against it, preach it, brother. But we don't view ourselves as having a problem with greed. We're, we're quick to judge others, though. Did you see that new car that that family is driving? That must have cost a fortune, you know, and how can they do that with all of the refugees around the world and all of the problems? And so we we judge it in others, but few of us would say, you know, I have a problem with greed. We tend to shrug it off by comparing ourselves with those who are richer than we are, and we think, well, someday when I become a multimillionaire, I'll worry about greed, but right now that's just... Not my problem. And yet we need to realize that Paul wrote this letter we've been studying, Colossians, to a small, kind of -of out-of-the-way city, church, fairly new Christians. They were just common people. I doubt if there were any multimillionaires among them in their currency of that day. And if greed was a problem for them, then certainly we living in this culture where we are bombarded through the media daily with um, materialism, you need to buy this to be happy, that kind of thing, surely we may need to heed Paul's words here when he says uh, we need to put to death our sinful nature with regard to greed, which he says amounts to idolatry. But having said that, it's not an easy subject to understand. I mean, are we being greedy when, as most of us here do, we live in comfortable homes, we have all the modern gadgets and conveniences, and there are people around the world just living in shacks with no uh, indoor plumbing? Are we being greedy when we have nice cars in our driveways and Most of us have some pretty nice toys in our garage. And, you know, we've got all kinds of stuff in this culture. And so you compare yourself with other cultures. Years ago, I read a great article by Roberta Winter when they went down to Guatemala. She thought they were going bare bones. 
and taking what they took. And when they got there and began unpacking their goods, all these poor people were standing there gawking and saying, why do you need that? You know, you don't need a washing machine. We just beat them out down on the rocks in the creek. And why do you need that? And why, do, you know, and, and so the disparity makes it difficult to evaluate where to draw the line. And so it's a very hard question to answer of how can we keep greed from becoming our God? Now, last week, I developed the idea from the verses we read here, verses 5 through 7, that Christians must radically separate themselves from all sexual immorality and greed. But since Paul mentions four words for sexual immorality and only one for greed, that was more the focus of that message. And you can um, listen to it if you missed it. But this morning, I felt a need to focus on that one subject I just touched on lightly last week on greed. And Paul is saying that as Christians, we need to radically separate ourselves from all greed. Now, last week I pointed out when Paul says, put to death, is the literal translation, put to death your members which are upon earth, with regard to sexual immorality and greed, what he means is radically separate yourself from those sins, beginning on the thought level, because all sin begins right here on the thought level. And we're to do so, as I pointed out, in light of verses 1 through 4. The verse begins, verse 5, with therefore. And so Paul is saying, in light of your new identity in Christ, you died to your old life, you've been raised up to new life, You're identified with Christ, who is our life. Because of that, now do this. Put to death these sins, your your body with regard to these sins. And as I pointed out, we are to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't a pull yourselves up by the bootstraps, make a resolution, you know, that. And yet, on the other hand, we are responsible to do it. It is our responsibility to put those sins to death. So this morning I want to try and answer four questions. The first one, to nail down what is greed. Then secondly, how should Christians view greed and wealth? Thirdly, how can I know if I'm greedy? And then finally, how can I deal with my greed? So first of all, let's look at the question, what is greed? I believe greed is the insatiable, uh, that word means never satisfied, desire to have more money or possessions for self-gratification while ignoring God and eternity. Uh, That's my own definition. I looked it up in Webster. They define greed as excessive or reprehensible acquisitiveness. And uh, I looked up the synonym covetous, And they mark that, they say that is marked by inordinate desire for wealth or possessions or for another's possessions. Now, the problem with those definitions is a lot of their adjectives are subjective because, let's face it, few of us would say, you know, um, yeah, I have excessive, reprehensible, uh, uh, inordinate desires for stuff. Uh, We're not going to say that. We would just say, you know, I just like a little bit more and more and more 
And that's how we view it. So greed then is this insatiable desire that I, I want more stuff and I want more stuff and money to satisfy me, and we block out God and his eternal perspective. Now, the Bible uses several words for greed. One of them is literally, in Greek, the love of silver. And Paul uses that in a familiar verse, 1 Timothy 6.10, when he says, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Uh, Another word is used when it translates the Tenth Commandment, which is, you shall not covet. And that word is the word for desire. It's often translated lust in a sexual way, but it's, it's the desire for more. And uh, it, with regard to other people's things, I want what they've got. Maybe I'm not going to take theirs away, but I want the same thing. You know, I want to live like that, that kind of desire. The main New Testament word for greed comes from two Greek words put together that mean to have more, to have more. Um, It's often used in the sense of taking advantage of another person, uh, but the main sense is just this desire to have more and more, and the object of having more is not to help others, it's to satisfy me. So there's a self-focus. In Mark chapter 7, which I quoted last week, Jesus mentions a long list of sins, and one of those uh, sins is deeds of coveting. And he says all of these sins come from our hearts. And so greed is not primarily concerned with amount. Greed is concerned with our attitude. And the fact is the poor can be just as greedy as the rich, sometimes more so. Because they're after things. And sometimes the rich are very generous people. But greed is this attitude that just says, you know, all I want is a little bit more than what I have. It's never satisfied. And Jesus um, illustrates that in a parable that he told in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. A man there in the crowd says to Jesus, teacher... Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Well, the Lord was fair, and I would have thought he would have said, well, bring that scoundrel here, and he would have given him a lecture and told him you need to be fair. But instead, uh, Jesus turns to the crowd. Well, first he tells the man with the complaint, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And then he turns to the crowd in Luke twelve fifteen, and he says this, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then, as the Lord often did, he drove the point home with a parable, a story. He told the story of a man who had too many crops for his barns. And so he decided, I'll build bigger barns. And as he's doing, thinking about that, he's congratulating himself, saying, Soul, you'll have many goods laid up for years to come. All of your needs will be met with these bigger barns. But then at the end of the story, verse 20, God says this to him, You fool. You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? 
And then Jesus concludes, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this guy wasn't content. He had plenty, but he thinks, I need more. I need more. And it's obvious he's not asking for more so that he can help others or further the kingdom of God or anything. He wants more so that he has financial security. So I'm good. Everything's tied up for the future. But he didn't consider God, God's kingdom. He didn't look around at the needy or the poor. And he was greedy. There's a familiar story told about, um, it's just a make-believe story, but a, a financier who was visited by an angel, and the angel said, I'll grant you one wish. And the man said, uh, I'd like to see a copy of the Wall Street Journal one year from now. And so he got it, and he was greedily looking over the stock page, thinking of the killing he was going to make by buying low and selling high. When he glanced across the page at the obituaries, and he saw his own name there. See, that changes everything, doesn't it? Got a year to live. And suddenly, all of his investments just kind of deflated in value. But greed puts the wrong value on temporal things. It treats temporal things as if they are stuff, and we are going to live forever, and... uh, In fact, like the man in the story, we could die today. Or we could lose all our stuff today. There's just no such thing as financial security in this life because life is that tentative and it's very uncertain. Um, But greed also doesn't just treat temporal things like that's reality It treats eternity like that's not reality. Oh, heaven? Eternity with God? Yeah, 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 maybe that'll happen someday. But what's real is now. When we get into eternity, we'll look back on the little blip of this life, and and it's just a quick flash on the radar screen compared to age upon age upon age unending that we will be with the Lord. And that's the point, again, of what Jesus is saying. So in light of eternity, and in light of the brevity and uncertainty of this life, we need to ask the question, I need to ask it, am I managing what God has entrusted to me so that I will be rich toward God? In other words, we need to look at our heavenly investment portfolio and say, how's it doing? I know stocks are up and down here. But how's, how's that eternal investment doing? The second question I want to answer then is, well, how should Christians then view greed and wealth? Greed is a serious sin to be avoided. Wealth is a serious responsibility to do good. Paul says here, the greed is tantamount to idolatry, and throughout Scripture, Idolatry is a serious sin, and Paul adds that it brings the wrath of God on those who are characterized by it. Elsewhere, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, 
Paul warns that the greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I believe that what he means again is not that somebody who stumbles into that sin and repents is not going to heaven, but rather people whose lives are characterized by these sins, it says they're not believers. They don't have God's values. And so they will be judged by God. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 not to associate with any so-called brother who is covetous, greedy. And he says, don't even eat with such a one. I don't know, as I mentioned last week, I've never heard of a church disciplining a greedy member. It just doesn't happen. And then to recite the verse I cited part of a minute ago, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, Paul says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Those are words about eternal ruin and destruction. And then he adds, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Almost, as I said last week, almost every time greed is mentioned in a catalog of sins, it's connected closely with sexual immorality. And as I pointed out last week, if we saw greed as equal to sexual immorality, I don't think we would be tolerating these TV preachers with their um, diamond rings and their jet airplanes and all the other Uh, materialistic things that they're boasting about, and we wouldn't be buying into their extravagant claims that God's will is for you to be financially prosperous. Um, Peter denounces such false teachers. He compares them to Balaam. He says they have hearts trained in greed. So we need to understand greed isn't just a minor little, oh yeah, I got that problem. It's a serious, serious sin tantamount to idolatry and also to sexual immorality. Well, does that mean then we all need to go take a vow of poverty and uh, get rid of all our possessions? I mean, how do we view wealth? I believe the Bible views wealth as a serious responsibility to do good. All wealth comes from God. It is a gift from him to us, and we are stewards to use it properly Uh, For him. I think the Bible teaches that we're free to enjoy the wealth that God gives us, but at the same time, we're stewards of it. Uh, Later in that 1 Timothy 6 chapter, Paul says this, verses 17 and 18 Instruct those who are rich in this present world, and before you say, Well, that's not I, uh, we're rich. Just the fact that we're sitting here with all that we have, we're all rich. So this applies to us. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now, the way that we attain riches normally in God's word is through hard work. And being careful stewards, not squandering it on this, that, and the other. 
at the same time, we need to be careful never to congratulate ourselves and say, I am a self-made man or woman. I earned this. It is mine. I can spend it as I choose. That's the deceitfulness of riches. Any financial success we enjoy, we have to say, God, you have given this to me graciously. Help me to be a good steward of it. When Israel was just about to go into Canaan, Moses in Deuteronomy 8, 18 said this, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is that this day. And that covenant he's referring to is the covenant God made with Abraham. God said, you know, I'll bless you, but you're to be a blessing to others. And Israel was to be the channel of God's blessing to the nations, as we, the church today, are to be as well. So the Bible then views wealth as as a good thing, but frankly, it's always dangerous. I've compared it to a loaded gun. If I'm out in the woods hiking and an angry bear is charging at me, there's nothing I would rather have than a good, powerful, loaded gun. It's very useful, but it's very dangerous especially in the hands of a five-year-old. And spiritually, I'm not putting us down, but most of us aren't mature. We're in process. And so if you've got wealth and you're a spiritual five-year-old, you're in a really precarious place. You just need to be on your knees saying, God, I want to be a good steward of this gift you've given to me, so help me to be faithful there. If we're deceived by our wealth, though, then our, sh- our trust shifts from the Lord to our wealth. We start trusting our bank account, our investments, and all of that. And when we get deceived by it, we begin squandering it on selfish living, and we're in danger, Paul says, of spiritual ruin. Now, as if all that weren't convicting enough, I'm moving on to the convicting part of this message. And that's the question... That's the question. How can I know if I'm greedy? Well, there are many signs of greed. I'm going to give you 10 of them in just a second. But before we look at those, let me warn you, we need to judge ourselves and not our neighbor. It's really easy to judge our neighbor on this and uh, apply it to them. But Jesus says, I need to take the log out of my own eye first. And if you think another believer is being greedy, then first, and then Galatians 6 1 says you need, in a spirit of gentleness, to go and seek to restore that brother or sister. But first, we need to deal with our own log. And uh, the bottom line is, we're all going to stand before God someday soon and, and give an account. And so I want to, to deal with my. Greed, and I want you to deal with yours. And I assure you, I am in the trenches. I am a fellow struggler with you. I battle this all the time. There's there's hard questions, you know. I mean, should we trade in our old car and get a newer model? And if so, how much should we spend? Or, you know, you go on vacation. Should I stay in a nice hotel or... Frankly, I could camp. You know, there's a tension there. How much do we spend on entertainment, on ourselves? 
the digital age is always dangling in front of me, some latest nifty gadget that I think, that's really cool, you know? I'd really love to have that toy. Do I need it, though, in light of eternity? Um, another one I'm struggling with and have been for years, how much do I set aside for the time when I'm simply not able to work? I hope to work as long as I have health and strength, but let's face it, there aren't many 80-year-old pastors out there doing their thing. And uh, so, you know, you have to think about that. How many years will I live and how much should I provide? And there are a lot of biblical principles but there's no flow chart, <laughs> no hard and fast, you know, go A, yep, now go here, now go there. That's just not there. For example, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8 that if I don't provide for my own family, I'm worse than an unbeliever and I've denied the faith. Those are not lightweight words. I mean, that's pretty heavy duty. I have an obligation to provide for my wife and, when they were at home, my children. On the other hand, I'm commanded not to store up treasures on earth, but to store up heavenly treasures and to seek first God's kingdom. So there's a tension there, isn't there? You know, I'm not trying to get rich, but I do want to provide. On the other hand, you know, I want to be going with the heavenly investments. And I sure don't want to get to be 85, 90 if I live that long and come say, church, I'm sorry, I ran out of money. Now you guys got to support me. That would not be a good thing. So there's that tension. So I prepared these questions, and I'm sure you can think of more, but there's only so much I can do in one message. So let me quickly go over some questions you can ask yourself. And I'm putting it in the first person for me. Number one, do I view my money and possessions as mine or God's? And this is the basic stewardship question every Christian needs to establish. I don't own it. Now, the Bible gives us a validity for property rights. In other words, my things are mine, not yours, and vice versa. So I can't come and say, hey, brother, thank you. I wanted that of yours. But at the same time, all of us need to recognize, bottom line is, I am only a steward of what God has given me. It's like um, he's the owner of the business, and he's appointed me the manager, and now I manage it for him, and I'm going to give him account someday. Second question, if I knew that I were going to die in one year, picking up on that story earlier, would I do anything different in my management of God's resources? Would I buy this item? Or would I give more to his cause? Or would I spend what I currently spend on entertainment? Um, you remember that movie Schindler's List? Maybe some of you didn't see it. it it's um, a difficult movie. Schindler was a man who rescued the Jews from the Nazi Holocaust. And at the end of the movie, the war is over, and Mr. Schindler is leaving Many of the Jews whom he has rescued, he's employed them in his munitions factory, but he spent his entire personal fortune to get these people. He bribed the German guards with his money to get these people rescued, and now he's leaving them. And as he looks at them, he breaks down in tears, and and he says, I could have done more. 
And these Jewish people try to console him and say, no, no, you've done so much. Look at all these people you've rescued. And he points to a fairly nice car that he owns. And he says, I could have sold that and rescued more. And then he pulls out an expensive fountain pen that he has and said, I, I could have sold that. And, and I could have sold my watch and rescued more. Now, Mr. Schindler wasn't a believer, and he wasn't rescuing people from hell by the gospel. But that always makes me think, you know, about in, in light of the brevity of life and in light of eternity ahead, could I do more? Could I do more? And am I valuing things above souls? I mean, souls are what are going to matter in eternity, aren't they? Not stuff. We aren't taking a U-Haul to heaven, you know, with all our stuff. Sometimes, you know, I'll be honest, maybe you get an unexpected gift, a really nifty thing. Maybe you won a door prize. I hope you don't enter raffles, but maybe you won a raffle. And boy, you're happy. Are you as happy when you hear somebody tell about a soul who comes to Christ? It's far more value than anything on this earth. Is somebody came to know Jesus, and they'll be with us in heaven forever. So, think about that question. The third question is this. Why do I want more money? Why? Now, this is dealing with motives. And maybe you legitimately say, well, I need to provide better for my family. My kids are facing college, and that's expensive. Okay, that's legit. But if I really honestly want more money so I can buy more stuff and build bigger barns, maybe I'm drifting into greed. Fourth question, am I more concerned about making money than I am about my eternal destiny? And this is the question Jesus raised telling about the man building his bigger barns. He was laying up treasures for himself on earth, but Jesus said he wasn't rich toward God. Now, I recognize it takes a lot of time and effort to make a living these days. And I would argue that there's nothing wrong with working hard so that you can be a success in your career. I think that's legitimate. Uh, But the other side of it is, if every waking moment is consumed with how I can get ahead, how I can make more, how I can do this, and with all of this worldly stuff, and you never sit down and think about, how can I be rich toward God? How can I lay up treasures in heaven so that when I check out of here, there's going to be friends in heaven greeting me and saying, thank you. Thank you. You invested in the Lord's work, and I'm in heaven because of you. There, there won't be any greater joy than that. A fifth question. What is the source of my security, money or God? Now, we have to be careful here because we all know the right answer. Of course, it's God. Well, is it? Is it? You know, what if all my things, all my bank accounts, all my possessions, everything was taken from me? Our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, the Christians, that's happened to many of them. 
due to the conflict there. They've had to flee their homes. Some of them have lost loved ones. They've lost all their possessions. And they're still following the Lord. You know, look at Job in the Bible. He loses everything. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. The next question is related. Number six, how, how much do I mourn the loss of money and things? Or if I'm considering buying something new, how hard would it be for me to give this thing up later? But my level of grief, if I lose something, is tied to my emotional attachment to that thing. Now, I acknowledge when we lose something, maybe you've gotten ripped off by a thief or you've lost money in the stocks or whatever, when you lose something, it's normal to grieve. Oh, man, you know, I thought I needed that, that kind of thing. But my point is, if we're trusting the Lord and not our possessions, and if we're recognizing he's the owner, we're not going to be devastated. I, I remember one time in the Coast Guard, we put out a fire on Frank Sinatra's boat, and Sinatra wasn't on it, but the boat was ruined. I mean, by the time we got that fire out, it was riding about that high above the water line because of all the water we put on the fire. And the captain was on board, and we asked him. He didn't seem very upset. And we asked him, he said, well, it's not my boat. It's not my boat. It belongs to Mr. Sinatra. And it's insured. And I thought, I've thought about that often. It's not my stuff. You know? One time I had a neighbor kid, and he, he rode his bike too close to my new car. It's the only new car I've ever bought, and it was a lemon, but he, he rode too close to it with his handlebar on his bike and put a long scratch in my car. And this kid was troubled, and I went out, and I looked at that scratch, and I just went, Lord, why do you want a scratch in your new car? I just, I don't understand. It's your car, Lord, but uh, made me grieve, but I wasn't devastated. Okay. Number seven. Do I cling to my things or am I generous and ready to share, as Paul says we should be? Would I get as excited about a, a strategic opportunity to advance the gospel as I get about a strategic investment to make more money? You know, here's an opportunity you can give and, and many will be reached. Wow, that ought to turn a crank. That ought to just make us go, wow, great. An eighth question. I told you these are convicting. Do I compromise godly character or priorities in the pursuit of making money? There are things that count far more than making money. God's reputation through my testimony as a Christian. If I rip off some guy and he knows I'm a Christian, God's name just got dragged into the gutter, didn't it? That shouldn't be. I need a clear conscience. That's a great value, to have a clear conscience before the Lord. Uh, my relationship with my wife and my children and with other people, that's more important than making money. And so if I sometimes cheat or lie or steal to get ahead financially or to avoid loss, I think I'm being greedy. If I'm willing to shred relationships or take advantage of another person for financial gain, I'm being greedy. Or if I care more about making money than being a witness for Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm being greedy. 
A ninth question, am I prone to get rich quick schemes? If I feel drawn to some quick, easy way to make a fortune, I think probably I need to deal with my greed. And this includes, by the way, gambling and playing the lottery. One time, I don't speak about gambling very often, but one Sunday when I did, years ago, this man came and he walked up to me and he said, you know, I teach a course on gambling. And he was a Christian. He hasn't been back, but... um, now, I'll be the first to admit, when that Powerball got up over $500 million or wherever it was a month or two ago, that's pretty tempting. But, you know, what is my motive for wanting to win that? Well, basically, it's really not, Lord, think of what I could do with this for your kingdom. You know, or even it's not gambling. You can do it for free online. Sign up for the Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes. And all you get is a bunch of annoying emails trying to get you to buy magazines. But, you know, why would I want all that money? Really, why? If, if you got it, man, you've got a big job now. How do you invest that wisely for eternity? But most of us, I'll give 10%, maybe even 20. You know, I'll be really generous, and then I'll live like a king. That's probably greed. And then the final question, am I in bondage to credit cards and debt? Ouch. Now, I I realize some people have run up a big debt because either they're out of work or they've had an unavoidable health issue, and it's cost them a lot, and I understand that, and you can't do anything about that. But, you know, studies show most people, and I would guess that applies here, who have huge credit card bills they're paying off every month are be in there because of mismanagement of their funds. They're greedy. They think they got to have it now. And they put it on credit, and it runs up these humongous bills. Our financial peace. Uh, Dan teaches that, and, uh, you know, they do a ceremony, the cutting of the cards, where they separate one half from the other and make sure they aren't in the same pot so they don't spontaneously regenerate. Not a bad thing. But, you know, if you're just buying into this Madison Avenue, you need this to be happy and going into debt to do it. That's a sign of greed. So that's the test, and you could probably think of more questions. But the last question deals with, if it uncovered a little strain of greed... How do you deal with it? How can I deal with my greed? And Paul says here, I must radically separate myself from all greed, beginning on the thought level. That's what putting myself to death with regard to greed means. It means taking radical action to cut that out of my life. And as I pointed out, if you only do it externally and not on the heart level, it's just a Band-Aid on the cancer. You've got to deal with your heart. Now, maybe you say, wow, that sounds kind of unpleasant. Why would I want to do that? Well, Paul's answer we looked at two weeks ago in verses 1 through 4. Because you have died, and your life now is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. 
In other words, the motivation is, um, to put it in, in Paul's other words, in Ephesians 3.8, he's, he's talking about the unfathomable riches of Christ that are ours. It's because Christ is that treasure in the field and you sold everything in order to gain that field with the treasure. Jesus is the pearl of great price and you went and sold all you had to get that pearl of great price. So now, why do you want all the junk? You got the pearl. You got the treasure. And so, in light of having Christ and in light of the joy and contentment that comes from knowing Christ and knowing you have eternal life with him, and all the riches of heaven, then you first acknowledge God, you're the owner. I'm not. I'm just a manager. And uh, you adopt the owner's priorities. The owner's priorities are kingdom purposes, souls for heaven. And you ask yourself, why do I need more stuff? Even if it's really nifty stuff, why do I need it? And, And you resist sales pressure. And before you buy something major, you pray about it. You really pray and say, Lord, do I need this? And help me to be a good steward here. This is a big investment. And and then get rid of all the stuff that you don't need and just try to live as simply as you can. Some may need to create a budget and live within the budget. Uh, And then learn to walk in the spirit. This isn't a self-improvement project. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in us, and one of those fruit is self-control, resisting the temptation to buy stuff you don't need. And then also to rid yourself of greed, make a commitment to give generously to the Lord's work. Giving is really the drain plug of greed. Give, give, give to the Lord's work. And I would say, do this. Trust God by giving off the top of your paycheck, not, well, I got a little left over at the end of the month. You won't. You won't have it left over. Give off the top as you plan it, you pray about it, and you give. And don't just give when you're pressured. And also, I would say, give when it hurts a little bit. Man, I could have used that thing, that cool deal. No, I want to give it to the Lord's work. And you will find joy in doing that. Many years ago, early in my ministry, I made the mistake of doing a series on the Christian and money. And uh, I realized that tithing doesn't cut it. 10% isn't the New Testament standard. Give as the Lord has prospered you is the standard. And most of us, frankly, could give more than 10% if we managed our money well. And so I had to go hard, and I began giving more to the Lord's work. And uh, we've done that now for about four, almost 35 to 40 years, giving more and more. It's not, well, I gave my 10%, 90% mine to squander. No, that's not the mindset. It's all the Lord's. How do you want me to spend it, Lord? How do you want me to allocate it so that I can lay up treasures in heaven, further your kingdom? Now, if you're thinking, well, you know, if I just made more, I'd give more, you're probably fooling yourself. We need to start where we're at, not where we think we might be someday. 
and you may need to get debt under control. You need to control spending, all of that. But why not trust God if you're given 10% and try 11? And then maybe up it to 12. And, you know, pretty soon you might be up there around 20%. And see if the Lord doesn't provide. And it's exciting to be able to give. And then, wow, the Lord just provided that for us. We needed it. We prayed about it. And we could have bought it if we hadn't given the money away. And now God provided it. It's a great, great feeling. And then if you get a raise, don't immediately spend it on stuff. Pray about, Lord, how do you want me to use this extra? Let me tell you about the best sermon I've ever read on giving. It's written by a non-Christian. John Steinbeck, The Pearl. Have you read it? Any of you? It's only about 100 pages. It's a great story about a a poor man who's a pearl diver. And he dreams of finding the perfect pearl. And one day he's down underwater and he sees it and he gets the perfect pearl. And then the rest of the story is about how instead of bringing him the happiness he had dreamed about, that pearl brought him one problem after another after another because everybody was after his pearl. He almost gets killed. His son does get killed. Um, He and his wife are at odds. His formerly tranquil life is totally upended and upset because he's trying to hang on to this pearl. And finally, at the end of the book, he goes down to the shore and he takes that pearl and he flings it as far out into the ocean as he can. Isn't he doing what Paul tells us to do here? Radically separate yourself from every form of greed. Every form of greed. For because of this, the wrath of God will come. Dear Father, I pray you would help us all, not just this morning to be convicted, but daily to be convicted about the need to be good stewards of all you've given to us. If there's anyone here, Lord, for whom this message is total nonsense because they've never found the treasure in the field. They've never discovered the pearl of great price, who is Jesus Christ, that you would open their eyes to see that they're bankrupt and they're headed toward judgment, but that Jesus came to save greedy people, immoral people, people living for themselves. Christ offered himself on the cross as the full atonement for sinners who will believe in him, that you would draw them to yourself this morning. And we ask it so that you will get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.